You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ransomware not only encrypts and steals data, but establishes persistence as well. Apple and Google roll out their exposure notification API. GCHQ will help secure Britain's centralized contact tracing system. A conspiracy-minded motive for doxing. Criminal markets and criminal enterprises continue to mimic legitimate ones. Robert M. Lee shares insights on a recent ransomware incident shutting down a gas pipeline. Our guest is Drex DeFord from Drexio on cybersecurity and healthcare amid COVID-19. And a new wrinkle in mobile ransomware. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for April 30th, 2020. It's now a commonplace to say that ransomware gangs threaten to dox their victims as well as render their data encrypted and inaccessible. A report this week from Microsoft's Microsoft Threat Protection Intelligence team concludes that it's not just the gangs who make the threats that are stealing the data. Even the criminals who don't threaten to steal information are doing it anyway. The data represent another revenue stream. The report also concludes that ransomware attackers don't necessarily leave a victim's networks even after the victim has paid. Instead, they maintain persistence as long as possible, the better to position themselves for subsequent attacks. Again, there's a revenue potential there. Apple and Google have released their first developer-focused version of their jointly developed Exposure Notification API, TechCrunch reports. Exposure Notification has replaced contact tracing, and that's probably a more accurate description given the system's decentralized design. The beta version allows developers to tailor alerts to specific exposure criteria, including proximity and duration, and it allows users to toggle their alerts on or off. Users may also opt in to sharing a COVID-19 diagnosis anonymously. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has expressed concerns, ThreatPost says, that the exposure notification system suffers from a security vulnerability. There's no reliable way, the EFF warns, of ensuring that the devices sending proximity warnings are in fact the devices they're supposed to be, and that trolling can't effectively be ruled out. There are other problems with false positives that don't require bad actors' involvement. To take some of the examples the EFF considers, two cars with windows rolled up passing side-by-side in traffic, a patient near a nurse in full protective gear, two people kissing. All those look about the same to Bluetooth. As the UK's National Health Service proceeds with plans for a centralized contact tracing system, The government's communications headquarters, GCHQ, will receive such access to the NHS system as it requires to ensure the system's integrity and security. Computing and others quote GCHQ as saying that it has no interest in acquiring personal health data, 
and that the agency's interest is solely the security of NHS systems. ZDNet reports that more than 170 privacy and information security researchers in the UK have signed an open letter about NHSX's development of a centralized COVID-19 contact tracing system. The signatories urge the health benefits of a digital solution be analyzed in depth by specialists from all relevant academic disciplines and sufficiently proven to be of value to justify the dangers involved. They have three questions. First, they'd like some reasonable assurance that any contact tracing system would actually work as intended to help control the pandemic. Second, while politely expressing their appreciation for NHS's commitment to transparency, they ask for assurances that anonymized data won't be de-anonymized to associate individuals with the information being collected. And third, they're concerned that the system might be adapted to other purposes and retained even after it had served its purpose and the UK has emerged from the pandemic. No mission creep, please. Drex DeFord is founder and CEO of Drexio, a healthcare IT consultancy. I caught up with him recently for his perspective on cybersecurity in healthcare amid COVID-19. I think that, you know, kind of the underlying theme for me around cybersecurity, given everything that's happening right now, is that, you know, being in a hurry uh, can be a recipe for disaster in general and, and certainly now. So we see a lot of health systems doing things like onboarding temporary staff and offboarding temporary staff. And all of that assumes that you're making proper access to systems and, and moving people and access around and you know, some larger health systems have identity and access management tools. A lot of them do this process manually. I would just say, you know, there's there's that kind of stuff. There's certainly a ton of work from home. They have ramped up uh, dramatically when it comes to uh, telehealth and telemedicine. And um, while all of that is absolutely terrific and really good stuff uh, for healthcare and patients and families, um, when you do those kinds of things in a hurry, when you build out that kind of infrastructure in a hurry, sometimes you you can make mistakes. And so those are the things I worry about for healthcare right now. So is this really an, an example of um, how pre-planning for, for events like these, so eventualities like these, are, are really going to pay off when uh, you're faced with a situation like this? I think the organizations, um, you know, we we have in healthcare, especially in hospitals, we have a credentialing organization called the Joint Commission. And the Joint Commission requires health systems to do regular uh, sort of disaster drills. Um, I think organizations that have uh, spent time thinking about pandemics and doing drills around those kinds of scenarios probably are in a better situation uh, because of the experience that they've uh, they've built up. But realistically, no one has experienced anything like this and no one's been able to drill for something like this. This goes on for a very long time and most of those exercises are set up for a short period of time. They run maybe a day or a couple of days and then the exercise is over. This is obviously much more long-term and so it's been much more of a challenge for health systems. Do you have any sense for what things are going to look like on the other side of this? Any lessons that the, the cybersecurity folks in healthcare are going to take away from this? Boy, two big things, I would say, absolutely. Given the kind of ramp up that we've had with telehealth and telemedicine, we are at a state in really just a few weeks where a lot of the work that um, CIOs and health systems have tried to do over the past several years 
has come to fruition. So I think the reality that health systems, some health systems who did maybe a few dozen telemedicine visits in a week before all of this and now do hundreds a day, uh, it's going to be hard to go backward on that. And the other thing is work from home. I think work from home is is uh, was a challenge in the beginning. It's only been a few weeks. I think it's still a challenge for a lot of people. But um, realistically, by the time this is over, we're going to have a lot of folks that have built new habits around working from home. They're going to be really comfortable with working from home. And so cybersecurity professionals and organizations in general are going to have to deal with I think a new environment where we're going to rethink who can work from home and what kind of benefits we get from that work from home scenario. That's Drex DeFord from Drexio. Bitdefender has taken a look at cybercriminals' activity during the pandemic and concluded that all of the warnings about cybercrime, as good and widely received as they've been, really haven't produced much of a reduction. They saw a five-fold increase in COVID-19-themed cyberattacks during March, and they think it likely that when April's returns are in, they'll see a comparable rise. A lot of the crime is conventional fraud and phishing with clickbait that appeals to the victim's fears about the coronavirus. But the New York Police Department is seeing a more repellent form of criminal extortion. Some hoods, the Daily Beast reports, are threatening to infect victims' families with COVID-19 should the victims fail to pay protection. The threat is empty, and the NYPD wants everyone to recognize it as a bluff. With that in mind, one might turn to a Digital Shadows report on the apparently softer, more human side of the criminal underworld, charitable endeavors on cybercriminal forums. There's some chatter, probably posted with a mixture of cunning, idleness, and a very small dollop of sincerity, that urges participants in criminal fora to engage in charity, diverting some of their take to the care of widows and orphans, and to other good causes. The chatter is interesting because it shows another way in which criminal markets mimic legitimate ones, not only with customer service, competitive pricing, and other features of commerce, but even with gestures towards social responsibility and even philanthropy. Some of the criminals are having none of it, sensibly pointing out that the sort of crime they're engaged in is by its very nature immoral, Others seem to worry about making a kind of expiation for their crimes. At least that's what they say. So, an interesting light on a corner of the criminal market. But don't build too many hopes on the Robin Hood urge. Remember how those promises to leave hospitals alone worked out. And finally, bogus scareware threats have been around for years. These usually tell users that some law enforcement organization, usually the FBI, has found the users to be up to no good and that the users must pay a fine to avoid further trouble. The scare is usually delivered by email or displayed in a browser. But CyberScoop says there's a new wrinkle. Ransomware is encrypting Android devices and delivering a note impersonating the FBI. The Bureau is offering decryption once the fine is paid, or so says the hoods. Most of the victims have been in Eastern Europe, and the ransomware itself has been traded in Russian-speaking criminal markets. Needless to say, the Bureau doesn't collect fines this way. And joining me once again is Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, always great to have you back. Uh, We saw this story come by about a ransomware attack that... 
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Had hit a gas pipeline facility DHS had uh, published some information about it. I wanted to get your insights. Uh, what, what do you think is going on here? Yeah, absolutely. This one was a bit confusing for folks um, in the way that it was handled. Nobody did anything inappropriate, but just uh, comms are always difficult around things like this, especially to a wide community. Um, so hmm. the, the pipeline disruption did occur, so it shut, absolutely shut down the ability for it to operate fully. Um, for two days is what it was being reported as um, due to ransomware. And, and this is not uncommon, and there are a lot more of these ransomware cases that are impacting industrial operations than, than ever gets made public. It's just these companies usually have a lot of focus on trying to recover correctly. Um, so the reality, though, the reason it was kind of confusing is the Coast Guard already came out and talked about this um, at the end of last year. So at the end of last year, Coast Guard came out and said, hey, there was a disruption to pipeline, and here is the impact, and you know, here's some details that we can share. Uh, and then DHS came out in February and published on a cyber attack on a pipeline. What the two government entities didn't say, which became obvious later, was that it was the same event. And hmm. so I think because of the delay in reporting on the DHS side, which is, un again, understandable, um, I think there, there was a lot of confusion thinking that these were two separate events. And when we look at it, it was also a little bit confusing. I had to explain this in my SANS class to folks, where DHS... And their CISA agency, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, have said on stage, have talked in front of Congress, have had these conversations around, we don't do instant response. Like, 
if you are out in the community, you should first call and make sure you have plans. Like, we're not your incident response team. And mm. then the report launches and it says, CSA did incident response to this pipeline facility. And it's like, well, hold on now. Mm. What does that actually mean? Um, and it really, I mean, everyone's being honest about it. It just comes down to like what you define as incident response. So mm. for private sector companies, you're still expected to have your own plan, to have your own teams, to work with your outsource providers if you're outsourcing any level of incident response, which most folks do have an incident response plan with some um, external vendor. You're supposed to do all that. And you should also look to be able to include your government partners when, when you find reasonable to include the CSA as they have both the responsibility as well as a number of tools um, at their disposal. And what they define as incident response is really being available to you to provide any insight of what's happening in the larger community, to go and, and be in person with you and provide any counseling they can or kind of guidance, but they're not getting hands on keyboard, they're not doing collection, they're not doing that type of work. So what the private sector would define as instant response and what the government would define as instant response is a little bit mismatched here, which made it a little bit more confusing. So do I think it's fair to call both instant response? Absolutely. It, it just comes down to if you're an infrastructure provider, you should really spell out roles and responsibilities in the incident to all parties involved, whether they're government or not. And on the government side, I would suggest that you know agencies work together to make sure that there's consistent reporting so that we don't potentially flavor one event as if it's two. And honestly, with no offense to any specific government agency, the, the right place to report these things out is the DHS. Like that that is their their singular role is being able to be the central organizing authority. And the CSA is very well positioned with great expertise inside that organization to be able to be that central. Um, communications authority around um, what the government is working on. Now, help me understand here, because I, I would say my understanding is that in most cases with ransomware, the ransomware has been able to get to the business systems of organizations like this. But in this case, it was able to hit the control systems. Is First of all, is my perception correct that that's usually the way things go, that people are generally doing a good job protecting those operational systems? Um, so I, I think... Both of those things can be true. So okay. are, are folks putting a lot of resources today into segmenting their operations technology environment? Absolutely. However, not a lot is being done. It's getting better, but not a lot is being done widely on monitoring and understanding what's happening in the operations environment. And so one of the things that we normally highlight to folks is that you may have segmented correctly your IT environment, even though we, we do find the ability to move into those environments pretty regularly. Um, one of our year review reports um, highlighted that over 70% of the time we could traverse from the IT into the OT networks. Like it's just you have to be able to for what you're running in business. But mm. the thing that most people don't um, normally immediately fully understand is that those operations environments are also connected to maintenance personnel, original equipment manufacturers, vendors, supply chain, et cetera, um, remotely, and shared network access. So just doing things in the IT network doesn't prohibit things coming into the OT anyway. So without saying that folks aren't taking it seriously, because they do, I will say that we are definitely not where we would want to be in operations technology security today, although the, the trend line is definitely aggressively moving in the right direction. And I think it is also not necessarily true that these things normally just happen to the IT networks. There have been dozens of cases where ransomware has been on the operations side of the house uh, across the world in the last year. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. 
And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.